Section 18 of The Spirit of American Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. The Spirit of American Literature by John Albert Macy. Section 18. Howells. In 1877, the Atlantic Monthly gave a dinner in honor of Whittier's birthday. The Howells presided. Among the honored guests were Holmes, Longfellow, and Emerson. The lion of the party, though nobody present knew it, was Mark Twain. He told an absurd story which may be read with elucidations in the volume of his speeches. An account of the episode is given by Mr. Howells in My Mark Twain. The story represents a western miner telling a stranger about three literary cusses who came to his cabin and who called themselves Mr. Emerson, Mr. Longfellow, and Dr. Holmes. Mark Twain assumed that because these three distinguished old gentlemen were present at the table in the midst of an immaculate civilization, the miner's yarn of three impossible hobos representing themselves as Mr. Longfellow, Dr. Holmes, and Mr. Emerson would be funny enough and would make everybody feel jolly and take another drink. An arctic chill congealed the story as it fell from Mark Twain's lips. Nobody was offended, really offended, but everybody was dismal, except the three fine old men of whom the other guests were abjectly, pitifully afraid. Literature was sensible enough, for it can always behave in a manly fashion. But the appreciation of literature, that is, the social respect for local greatness was so unsure of itself, so cringing and abashed by reputation, that it had no true dignity, only a Bostonian stiffness. Evidently, few large-minded and easy-natured people were present at that dinner. Professor Child was not there. He read Clemens's speech next day in the newspaper and chuckled, the only human laugh known to have been evoked in all New England by Mark Twain's tragic drollery. Clemens himself, a sensitive, self-scrutinizing gentleman, was deeply distressed, and he suffered long after he left Boston and returned to America. Mr. Howells, the Toastmaster, not only felt the normal discomfort which every Toastmaster feels when somebody whom we have with us tonight makes a fizzle, but continued for thirty-five years to deplore Mark Twain's disastrous blunder. He seems not to understand yet what happened. He does not, by his account, perceive that Mark Twain was the only young man present who behaved like a wholesome human being, and that his one mistake was in believing that he had been invited to a pleasant celebration. The occasion was really a funeral. Literature was being buried in Boston. In thirty-five years, it has not been reborn there. This little disaster unimportant in itself, towers like Bunker Hill Monument in the literary landscape, marking the defeat of the local forces. It symbolizes the passing of an era. It is a milestone as well as a tombstone. To read the record of that dinner is to pull the lava of an intellectual Pompeii. Everything in the Boston mind is just as it was. Not a thought has been engendered in any native-born literacy intellect since 1877. Old Boston stands there, with the paralyzed gestures of death in life survival. It has not even decayed. It is simply arrested, moveless, permanent, 
caught just in the moment when it was putting its last loaf of literary bread into the oven. It is real bread, a little soggy with the weight of the ashes, but well-baked and with a quaint lingering savour. This is old Boston. The million beings who go about the streets today and do the business of thriving modern Boston are a new people, like the Italians who walk above the graves of Rome, and these new Bostonians have not yet begun to make literature. Mark Twain escaped the fall of ashes and lava and returned to the universe of nature and humanity. One other man, Mr. Howells, was rescued. Having been born in Ohio, he was in part immune against the catastrophe that overtook all thoroughgoing literary Bostonians. His American birth and training preserved him. But he has never been the man he might have been if he had not come under the enervating spell of obsolete pieties. Nature made him witty, genial, sympathetic, observant, and endowed him with an infallible ear for the rhythms of English prose. To read any of the beautiful pages of Venetian life, the book in which he is nearest to being a poet, for in those days romance and youth were still a generous current in his soul. Then to read The Flight of Pony Baker, a delicious boy's book which proves he was incorrigibly young at sixty-five, then to read any of his twenty novels, is to get an impression of a man of rare and diversified gifts born to be one of the great interpreters of human life. But something happened to him. He was stricken by the dead hand in literature. There was in his vicinity no live literature to sustain him, to keep him in a state of courageous contemporaneity, contemporaneity with the world about him. He fell back on the past, and even the seven or eight modern European literatures with which he is familiar are, as he speaks of them, remote, romantic, misty. He writes of Tolstoy as he writes of Jane Austen or Dante. He became the dean of American letters, and there was no one else on the faculty. Huckleberry Finn ran away from school and did not go near college until Yale and Oxford played a joke under cover of the academic twilight and gave him gorgeous red gowns. Mr. Howells was very early Europeanized and Bostonized, and his Ohio outlook on life was dimmed by the fogs of tradition. It was the letter of old Europe and old Boston, not the spirit, that assailed and clouded him. He read French fiction and admired its shapeliness, yet he caught little more from its intensity and candor than a virginal New England schoolmistress might have received. He is as innocent and charmingly so as his own Lydia Blood. He read Tolstoy, and he makes the amazing statement that Tolstoy had a great influence on him. One would hear with no less surprise that Hawthorne was profoundly influenced by Swift and that Jane Austen felt that she had been made over by Rabelais. There is not one trace of the influence of Tolstoy, of Tolstoy's body of thought, soul, purpose, method, power, on any page of Mr. Howells that I have read. Tolstoy's terrific sense of life does not ripple the surface of Mr. Howells' placid, unemotional work, and his essay on Tolstoy is sentimental, feminine, and unimpressive. Someone, was it Mr. George Moore, has said that Mr. Henry James went to Paris and read Turgenev, and that Mr. Howells stayed at home and read Mr. James. This is malicious and probably not true as a matter of biographical fact, but it is aimed near the critical truth. The realistic novel grew up naturally from historic roots in France and in Russia. 
it was nurtured by a veracity of mind and a social freedom utterly alien to the hypocrisy and the superficial optimism of america mr howells and mr james alert to fine achievement admired this great slavic and gallic performance and they seem to have said go to realism is a real right thing we must be realists they thus accepted the self-imposed limitations of realism but they could not accept its profound privilege of telling the truth america would not perhaps have tarred and feathered a man honest and intrepid enough to write as balzac flaubert tolstoy dostoevsky wrote but it would not have permitted him to be dean mr howells realism is like a french play adapted for our stage the point of the original is missed and we wonder as we watch the fromanized translation how frenchmen can be so dull to take the method of realism without its substance without its integrity to the bolder passions results in a work precise in form and excellently finished but narrow in outlook and shallow hamlet and the king's crime are both left out mr howells with no american but mr james to invigorate him by contest or support him by intelligent cooperation got into a cul-de-sac it looked like the way to a new country but the way was barred as a critic he became the lone argumentative voice of a realism which he could not practice he could not in his novels illustrate his conviction or make clear what the issue is the issue may be stated roughly as follows fiction is a poetic imitation of biography it makes the magnificent assumption that its characters are real people and proceeds to tell a part of their lives in order to maintain this primary assumption it must do one of two things either it must make events so entertaining that no one cares to question the reality of the people as when achilles slays hector or dido pines for aeneas or it must make the people so real so very similar that no one dares to question their reality romance does the first of these two things the kiss of the fairy prince is so delicious that no one asks whether there ever was a fairy prince realism does the other thing it says that its people are true and are interesting because they are true truth cannot go wrong it must hold the attention of intelligent minds and as for unintelligent minds they may devote themselves to bridge whist and comic operas but having thrown down the gauntlet to falsehood and unlifelike invention realism immediately puts itself under obligation to deal with the whole truth so far as artistic proportions allow it cannot slink behind timid suppressions and reservations and still hope to win in its contest with romance it cannot play with its left hand tied behind its back to the reader of fatuous romance realism says life is more interesting than that read this it is about life and it must offer something really richer and more interesting it must offer tolstoy or balzac what if it offers a modern instance it loses its case at once instead of demonstrating that life is interesting that the commonplace is uncommonly interesting if you get under it and understand it a modern instance demonstrates with fine precision that life is not interesting to the people that live it and that the commonplace is just as commonplace as the romantic had always supposed it to be living people common or extraordinary have passions a modern instance is passionless the people in it with the exception of squire gaylord 
are not so profoundly moved that the reader catches the contagion of their feelings and their interests. Mr. Howell's realism, proclaiming the identity of life in literature, and his critical essays proclaim the same truth many times and in admirable manner, leaves the great things in life out. If there were no more passion in the world than Mr. Howell's recognizes and portrays, about eighty million of us Americans would never have been born, and once born, half of us would have died of ennui. Mr. Howells says somewhere that he cares only for the thing, common or uncommon, that reveals its intrinsic poetry. That is a right attitude, but it is not the attitude of Mr. Howells' novels, for he is not a poet as Meredith and Hardy and Flaubert are poets. He strips life not only of its false romance, but of its true romance. True realism imaginatively understands the romantic feelings of people in ordinary daylight circumstances. A sworn champion of theatric and juvenile romance like Stevenson does not need to be argued into liking the great realists, Fielding or Balzac. It takes to them naturally, because they are rich and humane, because they too are men of fancy and see that life is full of terrific tragedies and adventurous comedies. Mr. Howells, narrow in his convictions and timid in his handling of the very passions which make great realistic novels, tilts his lance against Stevenson and other men of exuberant fancy, and thinks he is fighting the battle of honest fiction. He is not. And the net result of his critical writings and his novel is to turn the battle against himself. Seldom in his books does he come to grips with a terrible motive of heart-tearing ecstasy, and people have those motives and those ecstasies in real life. In a modern instance, Bartley and Marcia are undermotivated. Bartley goes to the dogs in a true enough way, but his beer and his fat are not impressive signs or causes of the disintegration of a weak soul. The fat is a pathological fact, not at all alien to the noblest character, and he does not drink enough in all his recorded career to make an ordinary man drunk for more than a day or two. What is the to-do all about? The probable explanation is that, as Theodore Hook said of Wordsworth, Mr. Howell's conceptions of inebriation were no doubt extremely limited. The degeneration of Hubbard's character, which was poor to start with, is sanely probable. It is not inevitable seen in the light of what the author gives you. One is forced to remember that Mr. Howells was brought up in a community where we were taught in school that to smoke cigarettes was the beginning of the road to the gallows, and all the time we were smoking clay pipes out behind the barn. Marcia Hubbard must have suffered intensely. Her jealousy is a real tragic motive, but nothing is made of it. Her jealousy does not torture us, as does the jealousy of the man in Tolstoy, Kreutzer Sonata. Her story is plain as daylight, for Mr. Howells is a master of clear, self-evident narrative, but there is nothing under it. One can read her story over and over again without a qualm of sympathy, with not an instant of that vital contact, that emotional identity, which is the reader's great experience in great novels. She is removed from the book on a pair of tongs held by the amiable and delightful Atherton and Clara Kingsbury. We do not care a straw what became of her. The novelist's business is to make us feel that this poor, ignorant, vulgar, jealous girl is tremendously interesting as a victim of herself, even if she has not an intensely interesting personality. Halleck, too, 
must have had acute feelings. But all one can remember of him is that he was lame and was very sorry he did not go to Harvard and that Bartley owed him money. Squire Gaylord has the makings of a great character. He is a real man. He has deep fundamental emotion. The description of him is excellent, unforgettable. His face looks out of the page. But his tragic climax in the courtroom somehow does not come off. The shrewd pain of the old man, which the recorded events show he must have experienced, is simply not in the book. A modern instance is the best of those novels of Mr. Howells which approach tragedy. It is a good novel, an important novel, but it is not great because the tragic motives are not realized. Its failure is not due to the fact that the characters are sordid and commonplace, as foolish sentimentalists say all about the great ones from Balzac to Zola. Sordid and commonplace people, such as most of us are, have experiences as abysmally tragic, are damned with an acute capacities for suffering, as my Lord Hamlet, geniuses like Dostoevsky, and a certain Victorian novelist named Dickens, whom Mr. Howells is reported not to admire, search out of the heart of the very august tragedies in the breasts of ordinary folks and represent them so vividly that it is impossible to be indifferent to their histories. Ordinary persons in real life do extraordinarily interesting things. They have wondrously vivid sensations of commonplace events. Modern novelists have discovered how highly organized is the nervous system of a duffer, how lacerating are his grief and joy. They have also discovered how many interesting things common men do in the course of a day's work. Mr. Howell does not get at all this, because he does not know people and their day's work. He has seen them from his front window and in parlors, offices and summer hotels. Or he is imaginatively unable to grasp those great moments in the soul, great to the experiencing, if not to the observing soul those moments which make the person whom the soul inhabits act in absorbingly interesting ways. Either Mr. Howells cannot, or he dare not speak out about life. So that, as the solitary devoted protagonist of realism in these romantic United States, he has been curiously ineffectual. Is he not, after all, a feminine, delicate, slightly romantic genius, theoretically convinced that realism is the thing, but not equipped with the skill and experience to practice it. Seeing that Tolstoy writes of social problems and the people, he would forthwith do likewise, but he does not understand social problems and the people. In short, he does not know life. He would not know how to sit down and eat his grub with a bunch of workmen and find out what they think of things. Yet, theoretically, avowedly, he is all on their side of the social battle. To anyone who has read the literature, not the polite literature, but the daily and the documentary literature of social movements, Mr. Howell's Altruria seems like the sentimentalism of a benevolent man, a fine vision excellently expressed by one who would like to see the social world better, but does not know the structure of the social world. A recent paper by Mr. Howells on war shows an astonishing oblivion of all that has been written about the causes of war. He lays a gentle hand on belligerent men and says, This is not nice and humane. He says it for six or seven very fine pages, and the impression is as if an excellent, sincere, dreamy clergyman should accost a girl of the streets and say, Dear, dear, a fallen woman, too bad. Cannot something be done? In Annie Kilburn, 
some well-to-do people set out to help the poor. The point of the story is that they do not know anything about the poor and do not really sympathize with humanity. Mr. Howells is sympathetic and he understands the false point of view of the people in comfortable circumstances, but he unconsciously reveals his own ignorance of the very people whom Annie Kilburn is supposed to wish to help. He does not portray them. He does not take us into their houses. A Russian or a Frenchman or one of the younger English novelists, Mr. Wells, Mr. Galsworthy or Mr. Bennett, would have us eating dinner with one of the workmen by the third or fourth chapter, and we should know what is thought and felt by the kind of man whom Annie Kilburn is trying to understand. We should see the social contrast dramatized. Mr. Howell's sympathies, principles, methods are modern, advanced, emancipated. His knowledge of things and people is as restricted as that of the New York Nation or the Saturday Review. Life may be a tempest in a teapot. If it is, Mr. Howells is one of its finest and most faithful recorders. But he puts the emphasis on the teapot and not on the tempest, which is hardly consonant with his often restated, almost militant declaration that literature is life. He sees things from a distance. He is a sketcher, a very delicate farceur, a war correspondent who has never been in the range of the bullets. The foregoing negations oversay themselves unless it is understood that Mr. Howells takes literature with tragic seriousness and that he handles other authors in a very strict and schoolmasterly fashion so that he is fairly to be judged by his own severe standards of what is worth while in fiction. In his book My Literary Passions, Passions, there is the only case in all his work of a misused word and in his pronouncements from the easy chair, and other seats of critical judgment, he has been plain and direct. For all his mild manners and unapproachable tact, in his abuse of some very great writers. Moreover, the negations that are here somewhat awkwardly set down are valid, only on the hypothesis that we are discussing a man of genius, a man worth discussing, and are trying to say why an important capable novelist is not a great one. Within his limits, he is a perfect artist. His slender comedies are without a blemish. He never wrote a bad page, never wrote a sentence that anyone else could make better. Mark Twain has expressed his merit with vigorous justice. For forty years, his English has been to me a continual delight and astonishment. In the sustained exhibition of certain great qualities, clearness, compression, verbal exactness, and unforced and seemingly unconscious felicity of phrasing, he is, in my belief, without his peer in the English writing world. Sustained. I entrench myself behind that protecting word. There are others who exhibit these great qualities as greatly as does he, but only by intervaled distributions of rich moonlight, with stretches of veiled and dimmer landscape between. Whereas Howell's moon sails cloudless skies all night and all the nights. In the matter of verbal exactness, Mr. Howells has no superior, I suppose. He seems to be always able to find that elusive and shifty grain of gold, the right word. And where does he get the easy and effortless flow of his speech, and its cadenced and undulating rhythm, and its architectural felicities of construction, its graces of expression, its pemmican quality of compression, and all that? Born to him, no doubt. All in shining good order in the beginning, all extraordinary and all just as shining, 
just as extraordinary today, after forty years of diligent wear and tear and use. As concerns his humour, I will not try to say anything, yet I would try if I had the words that might approximately reach up to its high place. I do not think anyone else can play with humorous fancies so gracefully and delicately and deliciously as he does, nor has so many to play with, nor can come so near making them look as if they were doing the playing themselves, and he was not aware that they were at it. For they are unobtrusive and quiet in their ways and well-conducted. His is a humour which flows softly all around, about and over and through the mesh of the page, pervasive, refreshing, health-giving, and makes no more show and no more noise than does the circulation of the blood. If in his many books Mr. Howells has not had a great deal to say that is significant, he has said everything he meant in an unimprovable manner. There are secondary writers who have no influence on our thinking, whose wisdom is not profound, whose ideas we do not vividly recall, for example, Addison, Hawthorne, Putter, but anyone with a sense of literary craftsmanship can read them with pleasure, reread them with increasing admiration. Such a writer is Howells. Even when his story is not quite compelling, his writing fascinates. It is a joy to watch him maneuver the English language. As a writer of superficial, delicate comedy, he is unsurpassed. The lady of the Arustuk is faultless. The surface of it shimmers, and it is all surface. It is one of those stories in which American life is contrasted with European life, but to put it so is to strain its sheer fabric. The international differences are played with in a deft, light-handed way, and there is no assumption, as there is in the graver and richer novels of Mr. Henry James, that national ways and habits are being profoundly studied. The Lady of the Arostook groups itself in the pleasantest corner of the reader's memory with the novels of Jane Austen and Cranford. Matthew Arnold's exclamatory acceptance of it as a specimen of your New England life is a characteristic naivete on the part of one who was forever preaching the need of insight and proportion and the danger of pressing too heavily on a merely literary evidence. There is more of New England life in one of Mrs. Wilkins Freeman's short stories than in any of Howell's novels. Mr. Howell's observes life. He is not actually or imaginatively of it. His best comments are objective, pleasantly disdainful. From his point of view, in a corner of a gallery overlooking the human scene, he touches lightly a trick of character and illustrates an unobtrusively neat generality with a trivial action or gesture. He has amazing skill in making conversation clever, but not too clever to be apt on the lips of the postulated character. This skill is constant in his early comedies, The Lady of Arustuk, April Hopes, and Silas Latham, and it is undiminished in The Kentons, written years later. Nor is it much less evident in those novels which are supposed to belong to a different manner, such as The Quality of Mercy, for though Mr. Howell's outlook on life may have undergone radical changes, the texture of his work is much the same for forty years. He very early discovered a fine, definite, narrow gift, and he has employed the gift with unflagging conscience and industry. There is nothing better of its kind than the ball scene in April Hopes, where Mrs. Brinkley and Corey talk about themselves and Boston. There is nothing better than a half-dozen scenes in the Kentons, the conversations on the steamer, especially those in which one is held up by Boyne Kenton, 
who is certainly the best boy ever put into a grown-up novel, except Clara Middleton's friend Crossjay. Mr. Howell's books are of such even excellence that perhaps none is unquestionably best, but one vote is cast herewith for the Kentons. There Mr. Howells is getting back home. He knows the Ohio state of mind, at least since there may be no Ohio state of mind, but he knows that one Ohio family, and it is an excellent family, in itself as a collection of human beings, and in its artistic entity as a novelist's creation. Bittridge is a sort of Middle Western Bartley Hubbard, but he is much better drawn than the other journalistic bounder. As for the girls, they are a little more warmly and humanely handled than some of the other young people whose love affairs Mr. Howells has graciously sketched. The suffering of the elder daughter is quite poignant and moving. On the whole, Mr. Howells' treatment of young people in love is refreshing in a world full of novels, the chief object of which is to get a man and a girl eagerly into each other's arms on the last page. There is a slight acidity in his management of youthful matings, which make for sanity and never become so sharp as to be unkindly or the least cynical. The grand passions, sexual or other, he does not draw and seldom attempts to draw. Therefore, he has never written a great novel. Biographical Note William Dean Howells was born at Martins Ferry, Ohio, March 1, 1837. He was educated in his father's newspaper office as a compositor and journalist. He wrote a campaign life of Lincoln, for which he was appointed consul at Venice, where he lived from 1861 to 1865. For the next six years, he was associate editor of the New York Nation. From 1872 to 1881, he was editor of the Atlantic Monthly. Since 1886, he has been on the staff of Harper's Magazine. He was married in 1862 to Eleanor G. Meade. Some of his books are Poems of Two Friends with J. J. Piatt, 1860, Life of Lincoln, 1860, Venetian Life, 1866, Italian Journeys, 1867, No Love Lost, 1869, Suburban Sketches, 1871, Their Wedding Journey, 1871, Poems, 1873, A Chance Acquaintance, 1873, A Foregone Conclusion, 1874, Out of the Question, 1877, Life of Rutherford B. Hayes, 1877, A Counterfeit Presentment, 1877, The Lady of the Aroostook, 1879, The Undiscovered Country, 1880, A Fearful Responsibility, 1881, Dr. Breen's Practice, 1881, A Modern Instance, 1882, A Woman's Reason, 1883, A Little Girl Among the Old Masters, 1883, Three Villages, 1884, the Rise of Silas Latham, 1885, Tuscan Cities, 1885, The Minister's Charge, 1886, Indian Summer, 1886, Modern Italian Poets, 1887, April Hopes, 1887, Annie Kilburn, 1888, A Hazard of New Fortunes, 1889, The Shadow of a Dream, 1890, A Boy's Town, 1890, An Imperative Duty, 1891, the World of Chance, 1893. The Coast of Bohemia, 1893. A Traveller from Altruria, 1894. My Literary Passions, 1895. Stops of Various Quills, 1895. Impressions and Experiences, 1896. An Open-Eyed Conspiracy, 
1897, Raggedy Lady, 1899, Their Silver Wedding Journey, 1899, Literary Friends and Acquaintance, 1900, Heroines of Fiction, 1901, The Kentons, 1902, Literature and Life, 1902, The Flight of Pony Baker, 1902, Questionable Shapes, 1903, Letters Home, 1903, Miss Bellard's Inspiration, 1905, London Films, 1905, Certain Delightful English Towns, 1906, Between the Dark and the Daylight, 1907, Through the Eye of the Needle, 1907, The Mother and the Father, 1909, Seven English Cities, 1909, My Mark Twain, 1910. Mr. Howells is happily living, so that no one has yet written his biography. The only good essays about him that I have seen are one by John M. Robertson in Essays Toward a Critical Method and one by Mark Twain in Harper's Magazine for July 1906. End of section 18. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto, Birmingham, Alabama.